There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? I hope you're well. This is, of course, episode 666 of the Arscast. To all the Damians out there, this one is for you. Uh, a quick word on the theme music, which you will have noticed is a little different for the regular Arscast. It's not different. It's retro. That's right. This is the original Arscast theme music, which was written back in the day by some Arsblog readers and listeners. Hi, Stace, if you're still out there. Uh, and it was remixed down the years, and we used that one for quite a while. But having used this one in the uh, Arsblog 20 series, which you can still get, there are 20-odd podcasts, 21 podcasts, actually, one for every year of Arsblog's existence. As you know at this point, I really feel like it's time to, to re-embrace the originality, the OG Arscast theme, that is here to stay, and that is what we are going to use from now on. As I said at the top, I hope you're, uh, hope you're okay. hope everything is okay with you and yours. It's been a strange sort of a week um, here for me. It's uh, just a year since my dad died, March the 2nd, so that's been odd. It's like, how has a year gone by? How has this time flown so quickly? And uh, I, don't, I don't have an explanation for it other than time is a weird thing. And I think it gets weirder as you get older. Um, so, that, so that's so that been a bit of a, an odd thing. And then, of course, the state of the world, which is uh, horrible and weird and scary and all the rest of it. Um, it. It's hard to get focused, isn't it? It's hard to think about other things as being really genuinely actually important but they are they're important to us and they're important to to our lives um, you know i'm talking football i'm talking arsenal i'm talking that kind of stuff where you could very easily say well in the grand scheme of things this is not really the most important thing in the world and obviously that is right there are far more important things but at the same time we need we need this we need to be able to switch off to look forward to something, to anticipate something, to be excited about something. And that is just a sort of weird thing that I've been wrestling with this week. When you look at the news and you hear the news and then you think, what striker are we going to get? And you're like, oh, come on, man. come on. But I do think it's possible to recognize the importance of other things and still be able to invest in things which maybe don't add up to a hill of beans in this this crazy world that we're living in. All we can do is do our best for one another, and that, I think, is more important than ever right now. If there's a way that you think you can help 
offer some assistance, whatever it might be, financial, otherwise. It feels like this is the right time for all of us to do as much as we can to help people who are experiencing the kind of thing that we hope we will never, ever have to experience. Um, And I know everybody's ability to do that is different in every way, but I think we need to remember that too. We can do that and we can also live our own lives with our ups and downs and various foibles and challenges and as much as they are significant to us. You know what I mean? I think I know what I'm saying here. I don't quite know. It's just fucking fucked up. All of it is quite fucked up and I don't like it and I wish it would stop, but it doesn't look like that is going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. So look, there you go. I just sometimes have to say these things out loud for my own benefit as as much as anything else. But um, football is back this weekend. We're hopeful that Arsenal can take our minds off things for just a little bit and do what we need to do on the pitch uh, against Watford. And uh, after that, we can have all the chats and discussions about all that. A bit later, I'll be talking to Lewis Ambrose, a little uh, quick tactical chat about a piece that he wrote on Ars blog this week about our left-hand side. We'll talk to Lewis about that. But first, this week, Arsenal announced record losses and ticket price increases. With me to discuss that and more from the Arsenal Supporters Trust, it's Tim Payton. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm very well. Nice to be on. Okay, let's start with the um, financial results. And I don't. we don't need to get into the nitty-gritty because on the website, the arsenaltrust.org website, there's uh, analysis there, a big, long analysis from Simon Hill. And I know that you did a podcast as well with uh, Nigel Phillips. So people can uh, head over to the Arsenal uh, Supporters Trust website and uh, get the the details, the nuts and bolts of it all. But Arsenal making a loss um, in the period up to the end of uh, May 2021 is not a surprise, given that everything uh, that was going on in the world. Um, I mean, what's your main takeaway from the figures that came out? Not a surprise at all. You know, there were hardly any tickets sold. There was a big fall in income. The most interesting things to take out is how stubborn that wage bill was remaining um, Mm. and the issues of getting that in balance but also the transition from Arsenal's significant debt being owed to the bondholders. These were the people that lent the £260 million at the time of the building of the stadium. Mm. That debt has been removed or rather replaced, or I think the financial people would say, I have to say, refinanced, um, and is now due to KSE. Now, they have been as... You might not be surprised here, as enigmatic and silent as they could possibly be within their legal duty to report. Mm. So we don't know the rate of interest that is being paid on that loan. We do know that there is one. Simon Hill, who is an expert at reading the various um, figures, thinks it's probably at about 3% that we're repaying um, for about £200 million. And that £200 million has been lent with a call-in notice of two years. That means they have to give two years' notice to call it in, not that it will be called in in two years. Now, I should say this is very standard and normal procedure, and I, you know, I'm, I'm the first to raise a red flag. I think this is what you would expect to happen. But my final point before I, you know, before I stop talking is, you know, it does a little bit, you know, just bounce my blood pressure up a tiny bit when I read people saying that they're investing in the club. I think we should remember that what they are doing is borrowing money 
which they then lend to Arsenal, which Arsenal are legally due to repay. It's how most of them operate. Yeah. But we must remember that this isn't money that's been given to Arsenal. Sure. I mean, what they're doing is facilitating the uh, the financial well-being of the club within the kind of um, the way it operates normally. It's not a <laughs> gift. They're not benefactors. Um, I mean, I know that when we did uh, the club, when I say we, the club borrowed the money for the stadium, those bonds were at particularly high rates, weren't they? So refinancing that debt and lowering those interest rates um, seems like good sense. It does, although in doing that, they paid about £50 million in a mixture of fees and swap notes to break those loans. Because in effect, you had to compensate those bondholders Mm. for the interest that they weren't getting. Um, And that £50 million, of course, has all been added either to Arsenal's debt or was taken out of Arsenal's cash flow. Mm. But I would, you know, I would say that the refinancing was the right thing to do. It also gave them a bit more flexibility on cash flow. You might remember for years the interminable debate about why Arsenal was sitting on so much cash. Yeah. Some of it was, I think, because Arsenal being a liked to sit on cash. And some of it was because there were requirements to the bondholders that you had to keep a certain amount of cash in the club. In effect, it was like the underwrite to them. Mm. And Arsenal ran out of cash basically during COVID or came very close to doing it. So this refinancing was partly about addressing the challenges of COVID. So what is the the overall debt picture uh, that the club uh, has at this moment in time? How much debt is owing? Um, where exactly is that owed? Is it all now to KSE or, or based on their borrowings? Well, we're sort of halfway through the story because this picture doesn't include last summer's transfer window, where, again, to be fair to the club, a lot of money was invested. And Mm. and again, I go back to Simon Hill, who really understands these things. He thinks it's likely that about another 100 million was borrowed after these accounts to fund last summer. So overall, we think that there is probably about 500 million pounds of debt on the club now about 300 million of that will be money owed to KSE and the rest will be um, ongoing debt that's owned for players. Because, of course, as you know, you don't pay it all up front. You've got these ongoing liabilities to pay for players that they'll come in. So probably a a mixture of COVID and the investing in the squad that's taken place has seen Arsenal's debt go up by about 150 to 200 million. So... One of the things, and I'm not claiming to be any kind of an expert in NFL or anything like that, is the, you know, when the LA Rams won the Super Bowl, um, a lot of people were talking about how they kind of went all in this season and traded a lot of draft picks. And again, this isn't my area of expertise, but they kind of went for it. In the absence of Arsenal um, selling players who uh, can generate income, which can then be re... um, reinvested in other players. When we look ahead to the summer, and there are players who are going to go for free, probably, like Lacazette, like Nketiah, like Mohamed Elneny, um, somebody else as well, I can't quite uh, remember. Um, There isn't anybody in the squad that's a standout, like, well, we can cash in on him, we can make a load of money, um, you know, that, that we would like to sell. Let me put it like that. There's probably a couple of players in this squad who would fetch some good money if they were available on the market, but we don't want to see that because we're growing a team. Is it fair to say that in order to bring in the player slash players that we, that we need as a team in the summer, more than likely the money to finance those deals is going to be borrowed? 
Yes. And from qualifying for the Champions League, which we'd all like to see. And it's become a bit of a holy grail. But the difference in that compared to this year, where there's no Europe, is probably £100 million. Now, there mm. will be some extra costs qualifying for the Champions League. The players all have bonus bonuses. And yeah. I've got no problem with that. You know, pay for success. And there'll be more matches. But I think the transformational thing for the budget this summer, Andrew, would be qualifying for the Champions League. Mm. Well, that makes it even more um, interesting and exciting and necessary. I mean, certainly being back in Europe in some fashion. Your, your point about Arsenal borrowing more, then they could do that. But again, I'm not the financial expert. But I think there comes a point where if you borrow too much, you start being charged more and more yeah. for the borrowing that's taken place. Now, whether or not KSE would charge that, but what are they saying to Deutsche Bank? We believe it's Deutsche Bank who they are borrowing the money for Arsenal. You know, as you start to get to five, six, seven hundred million in debt, mm. lenders start to get a bit more worried about whether something might go wrong and they see it again. Um, and, and some fans will go, you know, borrow, 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 spend, spend, spend. Now, you know, we're not going to end up like Leeds and Ridsdale, but you know my point. You've, yeah. you've got to live within some sensible financial limits as a football club. Yeah, well, that is very true. And uh, look, I don't think um, whatever else you might say about KSE that they are um, they're going to borrow money to the point where it becomes impossible for them to service those loans or, or anything like that. Um, that's that's not who they are. Yeah. Um. Let's talk tickets and, and ticket price rises, and they've gone up for the first time in seven years. Um, I know that um, you guys have had some thoughts and some consultations and, and feedback and discussions with the club about these things and other supporters groups as well. Um, you're, how do I say that? I mean, you're opposed to a season ticket price rise, I think, on behalf of fans who are already stretched. Uh, inflation is high, there are rising costs of living and all of that kind of stuff. So how would you how would you counter the the other argument, you know, playing devil's advocate that like it has been 7 years since a price rise. Um the the price rise uh on average is about I think 50 pounds. Was that the was that the, the, average the season ticket the average, holder will yeah. pay about fifty pounds? And I know that, yeah, I know that. Like, um, if you're in club level, for example, that that's significantly higher. Um, but how would you counter that that argument? That well, look, it has been seven years. Inflation is rising. The club is um, spending a lot. There is a lot of debt. We do have to raise revenues in all the ways that we can. And unfortunately, one of those ways is by asking fans to put their hands in in their pockets. When this was put to us, and it was put to me in an Arsenal Advisory Board meeting, immediately challenged the figures that Vinay was given because he just put forward the ticket income and costs. And I said, I think that's not the full picture. Can you come back and present us the ticket income, the broadcast income, and the commercial income? Mm. Because overall, that's what Arsenal receive. And the broadcast income, Andrew, is still growing extraordinarily year from year. And I think next year, the Premier League are predicting another 12 million to every one of their clubs, just from the increase in the new US market deal. Mm. Um, Arsenal are bringing in more commercial partners, organisations like Socios, that could probably be a whole podcast in itself and the problems with that. But, you know, we're reaching a stage now where a 4% ticket rise by Arsenal increases their income by less than 1%. 
But for fans, with the energy bills going up, the national insurance tax coming in, all the other pressures from the retail price index could make that £50 you talked about quite difficult. Sure. So we just said we felt it was unjustified. But I can say that, you know, we challenged and Arsenal have been listening and some of the money from that rise is going to go and be spent particularly on helping ticket prices for younger fans. I must give credit to my colleague Akil, who's pushed this for several years at Arsenal now. But we felt that that drop-off of kind of coming out of school, college, and then going to university or perhaps your first job where you're not paid very much Mm. was almost impossible. Arsenal would become, I think, one of only four Premier League clubs that had no concession for the kind of 19, 20, 21-year age group. And they've introduced something there. And they're allowing that age group to sit anywhere in the stadium when they mm. buy their ticket. Because at age 19, 20, you've probably outgrown the family enclosure, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But you still need the price benefit. Yeah. And they are introducing improvements to the ticket exchange. They are in, in, going to improve the, um, the sort of login experience. They are taking away the booking fee when you buy tickets for the cup games for season ticket holders. So I, I would... I don't think it was a justified price increase, Mm. but I think that, you know, in pushing back to them and some of where they've committed to spend it, that helped. And of course, and this should happen anyway, and arguably it had gone on too long, but they are going to do some proper investment in the stadium, including, and I really hope that we will see this next year. I know something you've been very keen on for a long time, but I do see the light at the end of the tunnel on safe standing. Oh, Well, that's interesting because I know in conversations that we've had, not necessarily on the podcast, but but certainly um, offline, that the the stance on safe standing was a bit of a frustration because it was like, yes, we like it. Of course, we'll explore it. But there wasn't really any commitment to that. But you're saying that there now might be... Uh, softening is maybe not the right word, but but certainly more open to the idea of... Oh, I think a bit more than that. Oh, a wow. feasibility study has been done. Um, a company has been found that could do the work. There are a couple of different options. One is you just do it for the whole lower tier because it just is sort of easier to do it all at once and everybody's sight lines and issues are the same. Or do you start in the areas where people stand? But I think this has become as as much of a genuine issue that they are about to send a survey to all season ticket holders to find out what they would think, what they would be interested in, how it might be done. So I'm not saying for definite it would happen, but it feels like, Mm. and I must give credit to to Vinay on this, I think ever since he arrived, he's he's recognised it as one of the big ask by the supporter groups. And it's very frustrating, isn't it, to watch Arsenal, who you like to think can be a pioneer club, can be at the forefront, and we're having to watch it at, Anfield and Chelsea and Spurs and mm. other clubs and we weren't in that first wave. But yeah, I am I am cautiously optimistic that when you come over in the 23-24 season, you will be legally standing in the Emirates. Okay, that would be fun. <laughs> that would be fun, I have to say. Um, I mean, just on that, if you're talking about the whole of the lower tier, I know something that people have um, mentioned before is the uh, placement of the away fans. Is that a, an area that's up for discussion at all? Because no. I I know no. that I know that like there's been a suggestion that you could move them to the to the upper tiers, as happens at many grounds. Away fans are in the upper tiers, but is that a safety consideration or? It's a safety consideration. I would also be very against it because I think it's a 
is a pricing consideration that is unfair. Although, of course, with the fixed price that you pay at the away games mm. now, it, it, it wouldn't come in. It would arguably hurt Arsenal. But there's also, and I, I, I do defend this because I think we have to think of ourselves in the round. There's a Premier League rule now that, that if it's possible, the fans must be located as close to the pitch as possible. Um, okay. Only one club doesn't comply, and that's Newcastle. And Mark <laughs> Ashley went to court to try and show why he couldn't comply because of access. But what's also very interesting in your question there is the Sports Ground Safety Authority, who licensed this new safe standing approach, they say they will only allow it if you introduce it for the away fans as well. Okay. And I think that's partly because they know that away fans stand anyway. Mm. And so you create kind of like equality between what's happening to everybody. Um, but yes, it it's um, something that I think is going to happen. And I think long overdue. And of course, for half the lower bowl, it's just normalising what happens anyway. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it, it does have an impact on atmosphere and it does have an impact on what happens inside the stadium. And when you think about... What Mikel Arteta has said on countless occasions this season and, you know, last season when there weren't fans, but, you know, the the what he's trying to build, I think, obviously, first and foremost, is on the pitch. But he's been very, very clear about what he wants to build between the team and the fans and that connection inside the ground, which has... Uh, you can't measure it, but we know that there's an impact when the atmosphere is good, when a stadium is noisy and raucous yeah. and there is atmosphere in there. And does that then also tie in with some of the improvements that they're looking to make inside oh. the ground, the roof, the screens, the wraps outside, the whole, for want of a better way of expressing it, the stadium experience? I think it absolutely does. And this is one of the reasons why I challenged and said, look, the 4% ticket price, don't do it. Don't risk undoing what I think has been a bit of a rebuild between Arsenal fans and the team this year, mm. following the Super League and following huge frustrations of recent years. Now, if we carry on winning and come fourth, I think most people will, will see this as a minor grumble and carry on. Yeah. Ironically, we we least need the 4% price increase if we come fourth, but you, you, know, what, you yeah. know what I mean in the round. But absolutely, and I must pay credit, particularly there's a, there's, a, there's a new employee or at least someone in a new role, Tom McCann at Arsenal, who's now running venue and stadium, who has been really open to all of this and actually has picked up on another thing which I've been banging on about, some would say whinging for many years, which is the empty seats. Mm. And starting from next year, if you leave your seat empty too many times, you will lose it. You know, and I think that's absolutely fantastic because you, you were talking there about a full stadium, yeah. about getting people in who want to be there, who can support the team. Having 5,000 empty seats doesn't help create the atmosphere, does it? It's not no. good for the game. And so, you know, easier ticket transfer so you can get your friends in, more, you know, cheaper beers when you get in screens you can see mm. all of this little things but they all add to that feeling that we're in a club together sure and you you talked about maybe changes or improvements made to the ticket exchange and the way that fans can if you can't go and there are obviously many good reasons why people can't attend games and even for a period of a season there might be a good reason why somebody can't use their ticket but uh, there are, um, I don't know if it's complicated, but I, I do feel like sometimes you see people talk about the ticket exchange and go, well, you can only do this after this is in place or this has been announced or whatever it is. So what what sort of improvements are you talking about there? And, and look, I'm sorry to I'll let you finish. I mean, I do wonder as well, um, one of the things that, that I get asked an awful lot is, 
um, from overseas fans who are looking to make trips, who are looking to perhaps take advantage of the X amount percentage of tickets that are on the ticket exchange, um, but kind of need maybe a bit more uh, notice, if you like, about how and when tickets are going to be available, even if it's just to say, well, for this game, there were tickets available right up until X, whatever time it was. Therefore, I can try and make plans based on on that kind of thing. And I know that, you know, um, it's, a, it's a big market, overseas fans and, and fans coming from far and wide to see Arsenal as they should. Um, is, that a, is that a talking point at all as well? Well, if you make more tickets available, they've got more chance of getting their hands on them and getting into the stadium. Mm. It drives me mad when I walk past the box office, you know, an hour before the game, and I see people, they might be more at the tourist end of fans, but asking for tickets, trying to get in to watch the team, told that it's sold out. And I know full well I'm going into a stadium with 5,000 empty seats. Mm. And I, how do we sort out that mis- mismatch? You're right, it needs better communication. It needs an app, doesn't it? But in this day and age, you shouldn't need to sit down at your desktop yeah. to transfer your ticket. You, you know, you should be able to do it on the day from your phone. All of these things are coming, not necessarily for next season, but the season after. You might also know that when you transfer a ticket, it can be a bit convoluted and you can only transfer it to someone who's a member inside your system. Mm. They're going to make it much easier for someone to sign up to a membership so you can, on the day, so you can just transfer a ticket to them. Yeah. The ticket exchange will be even more friendly to use. So I think lot, lots of change coming, but all with the 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 simple objective of getting more tickets used. And that means making it easier for people that can't go, not to think, oh, it's just too much hassle. Yeah. I just leave it sitting in the system. And, you know, they're writing off their 45 quid or whatever it might be. Um, but what they're really doing is depriving someone of a chance to watch Arsenal. Yeah, and uh, hopefully it's an Arsenal that more and more people want to watch. Mm. You know, we know why there are empty seats at times as a consequence of, you know, things not going particularly well on the pitch or the attractiveness of a game or what have you. But but certainly, you know, some of the... Um, some of the uh, initiatives that the club have put in place regarding tickets, like cheap tickets, concession tickets for Carabao Cup games to get new fans in and all of that kind of stuff are great. And the more um, the more things like that, the, the better. Just before we move off this, I know that the Arsenal Advisory Board was set up. Um, it works. I'm not sure whether it's quite in tandem with the fans forum. Um, but I know that, you know... Uh, in your role in the Arsenal Supporters Trust, and I know that other supporters groups as well, you know, the, the the bigger and greater the lines of communication are with the club, the more things get done. So um, what is your early feedback on the Arsenal Advisory Board, on the meetings that have taken place or the ones that are planned and its effectiveness as a, as a, as a group, if you like? I think I would say the jury's out <laughs> or it's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Where I have felt... Over the last two years, and again, I go back to Vinay arriving, there's been a a, a real improvement, has been at the operational level. So talk to the ticketing team, talk to the commercial team about individual issues, put forward your point of view, and often things happen. The Arsenal Advisory Board is the meeting that Tim Lewis as a board member and Josh Cronkey are meant to come to. It should be much more strategic, if you like, about the corporate governance, 
So if I give an example, it should be about the club's approach to bringing in a new commercial partner, what due diligence it does, what fits with Arsenal's values, how it works. I'd expect the fans forum to be more about, you know, a complaint about how that's operating sure. or we didn't like this product that's given. And at the moment, we're still getting fobbed off too much at the advisory board. We can't talk about the European Super League because, you know, that would break our legal agreement or we're not telling you what we think about the reform of European competitions. That's for us. Or, well, all you need to know about the finances are in the report and accounts that are published. I don't think the advisory board is meeting the spirit of what the Tracy Crouch review into football reform expected, which was gen- to have an advisory board. But they are turning up. They are there to even if hear the grumbles. Um, and I think it should give it you know, a year to 18 months mm-hmm. before have it, having an absolute final view. If I give you one other example, and I think this is a, a learning experience for the club, they brought the ticket price increase to the advisory board, but said, you're not allowed to talk about it to anyone. And I said, well, we're not allowed to talk about it to anyone. Are you consulting then? No. It's not really very advisory or consultative or engagement focused to bring something to us. Either bring it to us and ask for feedback and consult or let it be shared. Mm. And we pushed quite hard on this. And to be fair to them, they let us have another meeting and perhaps we got a few things out of it. I think next year it's the sort of thing that they should raise in the autumn and have a bit more of a discussion. And maybe if they're going to increase ticket prices, we can link it to, well, what are you going to do with the money that's going to benefit the people that are paying it in the stadium? Sure. Because everyone could say we all benefit if the team is better. But I think you see the general point. So – Jury out on the advisory board and okay. how it's working it's, so far. It's still pretty young, though, so, you know, it, it has had time. two meetings. Yeah, well, there yeah. you go. I mean, there's there's time for all those things to be ironed out and for uh, for things to work a bit better. I mean, you talk about, um, or we're talking about ownership and things like that, and it's probably difficult to have a conversation um, this week without talking about uh, the way Premier League clubs operate and, and money and all of that kind of stuff in the wake of what's happening with Chelsea and Roman Abramovich and his uh, announcement that he's going to to sell the club and with the net proceeds set up a, a charitable fund to help the victims of the war in Ukraine. Uh, it's a pretty vague statement. Um, I know some people want to read the best out of it. Uh, it's really very difficult not to be cynical um, I mean, when you look at Premier League club ownership now, it goes back, to my mind anyway, when Abramovich came and just blew everybody out of the water and, and pretty much set the tone for what Premier League ownership and the demands of fans, what we have today. So you have the Saudi Arabian takeover of Newcastle, Abu Dhabi group in um Man City, and we all have our own um, issues with with some of Arsenal's sponsors, perhaps. You know, this this landscape that we live in. I mean, how do you view the Abramovich situation now, particularly when you see around Europe the assets of oligarchs are being taken by mm-hmm. governments? Could have been Arsenal. <laughs> well, I mean, that I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that as well. I mean, in the... In the cold light of day now, I mean, uh, if Alisher Uzmanov had come out on top in that, 
I'm not going to say it was necessarily a battle for supremacy. Well, well, okay, then it was a battle for supremacy at Arsenal. And there was a lot of maneuvering that went on to ensure that Stan Kroenke was the man who ended up with more shares. Um, we had this terrible Cold War at the club for the best part of 10 years, where you had a majority shareholder, but a guy who owned a huge chunk of the club as well, which I think played a part in the stagnation. But I mean, when you look at it now, do you are you thankful that Usmanov was not the guy? I know he had some ideas, for example, about um, uh, how did you describe it or how is it described? Um, share capital. Uh, well, one of the things he actually said he would do was buy out this bondholder debt, which has recently mm. been bought out by KSE. Yeah. But he would have probably done it in a slightly different way. I think, actually, I stick to the position. It's why I still, after a lot of time, you know, still put some effort into the AST, although it might be a forlorn hope. We always say that Arsenal is too important to be owned by any one person, mm. you know, but we wouldn't be in this problem at Chelsea or at Newcastle or Arsenal if we had some significant fan involvement soon, because fans wouldn't be too close to Putin, would they? <laughs> fans no. wouldn't bring human rights issues. We might bring one or two other things. But on the whole, I think that at least a mix of fans would be healthier. And I never want, you always used to say that, that people used to say, oh, do you want Usmanov or Kroenke? And I said, well, really, neither. I know, I know it might be the practical choice, but Arsenal's too important. I think a plurality of shareholders is, is strongest and is best. But also, and again, I know I'm, pro I'm probably, people are going to go, oh, look, he's a daydreamer getting the real world. But linked to that, I would have spending rules or processes, you know, that keep, that keep the game safe and, 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 and healthy from this kind of thing. Yeah. I hope that the, the reforms that Tracy Crouch is proposing, and they won't end this at all, but trying to give some golden share control to fans, trying to bring in a regulator that might be able to look at human rights a little bit more. We're never going to turn the clock back or introduce a Bundesliga-type system, but I do think that the European Super League last year, the Abramovich scenario at the Newcastle scenario, might just actually get people thinking, we can be a little bit better than this. Well, I mean, the genie's well and truly out of the bottle, though, isn't it? Because, um, you know, today there's a, a story about the Premier League is considering adding a human rights component to its owners and directors test. Like, considering... I mean, this is an organisation that has been absolutely and utterly... Maybe corrupted is the wrong word, but driven by the pursuit of money, NFTs and crypto. And even if you're a bit crypto agnostic or skeptic or whatever it might be, it seems like the first idea isn't like, how can this technology be used in a useful way for fans? How can this technology actually be used to get more money out of the pockets of fans? And that kind of attitude is just so pervasive at Premier League level. It's, it's hard to know how we can... Uh, as football it's a fans, constant race to the bottom, isn't yeah. it? When I challenged on Socios, the answer was kind of, "Well, if we don't do it, others are, and then they'll have a bit more money to spend than us." And it's just got to be a bit better than that. And again, I wonder whether that's a bit more central regulation. Mm. You know, it's always, "Well, we've got to do this terrible thing because we've got to have a bit more money than they have." To, you know, to keep the whole thing going. Yeah. And I just wonder if these terrible circumstances we're seeing in the world at the moment but where people are having to rethink, do you have a broadcast deal with Russia? What do we do about, you know, our position in the economy? What happens with Abramovich might just 
lead to a little bit more soul searching about how we do the right thing rather than the richest thing. Well, I would hope so. I don't hold out a great deal of hope for that because um, not just in Premier League terms, but those financial demands or what have you tend to drive all the decision making. And we can come up with countless examples of how the right thing isn't necessarily the financially beneficial thing. Um, and clubs and businesses and organizations are nearly always going to go for the financially beneficial thing. So uh, we'll wait and see. Tim, uh, as always, thank you very much indeed. Uh, great to talk to you. Thanks for having us on. Tim is on Twitter at Tim Payton, at Tim Payton. And you can check out the great work that the Arsenal Supporters Trust do at arsenaltrust.org. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, with me now on the Arsecast to take a look at Arsenal's left-hand side from a tactical perspective, Lewis Ambrose. Hello, Lewis. Andrew, thanks for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, we don't talk often enough, you see. That's the thing, so... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> it's been a quiet week from an Arsenal perspective. Not a lot of news. We won our last game. We didn't play at the weekend. So there's no huge story involving us or our owners or anything like that, thankfully very much. Um, but it means news is quiet on the ground. But I did want to touch on this because... Arsenal's left-hand side has changed a little bit over the last couple of weeks. We've seen Granit Xhaka push higher, etc., etc. And you've uh, done a bit of a piece on the website, which people can read. Uh, go into the show notes, you'll find a link to it, but it's on arsblog.com as well. I suppose the, the place to start is the slightly different Granit Xhaka role, where he is playing higher up the pitch, and the impact that that appears to be having um, on what we do and how often we do it um yeah well i, I guess you mean what we do is <laughs> and, and how often we do it is sort of scoring goals or creating chances yeah which is Sorry. something yeah no 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 worries and uh, something that i think since Mikel Arteta arrived we've all had issues with uh, at various times to varying extents mm -hmm. that Arsenal haven't been exciting enough haven't been or looked dangerous enough and not scored enough goals and that does the last couple of months feel like it started to change 
I mean, I think you and I touched on this in sort of December, around Christmas time, mm. and about Granit Xhaka seemingly playing more like a box-to-box midfielder. And I know it frustrated a lot of people before then, the sort of 18, well, the two two years that Mikel Arteta had been in charge up until this Christmas, mm. that Granit Xhaka had often appeared to play sort of like a left-back when we had the ball. You know, you... You imagine Kieran Tierney bombing up the left-hand side and you'd see Granit Xhaka outside Gabriel yeah. playing in that sort of left-back position, if you want to call it that. And yeah, he's not really there anymore. He's he's getting in the box or he's receiving the ball on the edge of the box or playing passes. The sorts of passes you expect him to play when he's on the left of Gabriel and he's looking for somebody maybe in midfield or usually down the wing looking for Tierney on the overlap or Smith-Rowe or... Um, Gabriel Martinelli when he's out there he's not playing those passes anymore Those he's getting the ball and playing the ball more where you'd expect Martin Odegaard to get it on the other side of the pitch and around the box when when Gabriel has the ball he's got an extra option ahead of him in Granit Xhaka instead of looking sideways to Granit Xhaka for it to go up the line so yeah it's it's interesting it gives us obviously an extra player in the box. I mean, I don't think when the ball drops on the edge of the box or a cross goes in or we're trying to intricately play through a defence, I don't think Granit Xhaka's necessarily the man that everybody wants to get on the ball in those positions. But it means we've got an extra man in those positions. Or, if not an extra man, a a slight reconfiguration of the players who are in in the different positions instead of the same old predictable stuff. Yeah, I'll just read out a couple of the stats that you have in the piece. Uh, Via StatsBomb, Arsenal completed over 50 pressures in the final third in four of their first 58 matches under Arteta before this season. They then completed over 50 final third pressures in three of the opening 17 Premier League games. But since then... We've completed over 50 final third pressures in five of the last seven matches. We're pressing higher with more intensity, forcing them to play long. And you also say Arsenal managed 20 or more shots in just two of Arteta's first 58 Premier League games in in charge. They've taken 20 or more shots in nine of 24 Premier League matches this season, including five of the last eight. Why or what do you put down the, the recent... If you want to say improvement, uh, you know, just when it comes to the numbers anyway, what what do you put that down to? Is it a case that the new players are more settled in? The central defensive partnership is more established? Uh, you know, Martin Odegaard is now pulling strings. You know, what, what, what exactly do you think has changed in the last number of weeks that has made Granit Xhaka's role so different and so noticeably different? I think it's a bit of everything and without without being a, a cop-out about it. I think it is a little bit of all of those things. I think you see Arsenal now. How many times in the Arsene Wenger era did we... You know, I, I just The first team that comes into my head is Hull. Like Hull would come to the Emirates or Wigan would come to the Emirates and we would spend the game, as long as we weren't ahead, every minute would be basically camped on the edge of their box. Uh, obviously, mm. as the Arsene Wenger era went on and turned into the Unai Emery era and then the start of Arteta, we became wide open on the break and we stopped managing to control those games. Teams could escape that pressure and get away from us a little bit and then obviously create chances for themselves and it just pushed us back. 
I, I thought the Wolves game and the, and the Brentford game as well. I, I, this was the first time in years that in back-to-back matches I've seen Arsenal play somebody, need to score a goal, and it's just like, well, you're not getting out your penalty area then. And I thought you know, Gabriel was really aggressive uh, as the centre-back. Just, it feels like Arsenal, it feels like things have clicked. It feels like things aren't so rigid anymore. And I know Arteta himself spoke last season about not having the players that he wanted to to play exactly the football that he wanted yeah. to play. But it all became so formulaic. Like we all knew that Kieran Tierney would go outside on the left and usually, I guess, last season, Aubameyang would play on the left and come inside. And you had this sort of front five where it was the right winger on the right, but it was the left back on the left. And then you had your sort of number 10, the striker in, in Lacazette mm. and Aubameyang as the, the three central players in that. And now there's just variation. I think Arsenal, there was, there's great little moments where Tierney's where you expect Smith-Rowe to be or Xhaka's where you expect Tierney to be. And they're all just switch, switching around in that same, you know, it isn't always Tierney as the, it is sort of still the five players play outside. You know, you've got two on yeah. the flanks and then three in the middle when we attack. But sometimes it's Smith Rowe on the left and sometimes it's Tierney and sometimes it's Xhaka. And those rotations have, have become a hell of a lot better. I think it makes us so much less predictable for opposition defences. I think we're using it to exploit space a lot better. And think when those rotations happen, the guy who's marking Smith-Rowe has a decision to make. And that was something I wrote about a lot when things weren't going so well going mm. forward, is I didn't think Arsenal were ever really giving defenders decisions to make. You, like a right back could stand in his position and not really have to move. And his job was very simple. But now you've got players going out of gaps, going into gaps, and the right back's like... Is that my man? Should I follow him? Is Do I pass him over to the centre-back now and, and keep my position out here? And they're just dragging teams around a little bit better. And then when the ball does break loose, they've got such a solid wall, I think, of, of Gabriel, of Jacka usually, or Tierney, of Thomas Partey, mm. who win their challenges. Tommy Yasu on the right is fantastic at that as well. We We play aggressively, I think... We play defensively, aggressively when we have the ball and you see the ball break and you see it bounce to the edge of the area. But Gabriel is almost marking a, a striker on the edge of the box or Jack will be marking a striker on the edge of the box when we're putting the ball into the box. Yeah. These players are already thinking, right, if, if this ball breaks and who's my man while well, we're still in possession of the ball and we're doing it with so much more intent and aggression that it's just letting us box teams in and... I think, you know, it is a mixture of things. Martin Odegaard on the right, as you say, is is finding gaps and I think he's instrumental in pressing high and you see him constantly yeah. pointing to Bukayo Saka, you know, when he wants Saka to come up on that side, when he wants Saka to drop in and cover him, when he goes on a run. It's, it's those little things. I don't know how much to put it down to the players just getting used to each other and I don't know how much it's Mikel Arteta trusting them more yeah. and maybe developing his own idea of how they should play but it's working and we're starting to really dominate games. It's quite interesting as well to think about the idea of balance, if you like, um, because we have a right-footed, usually a right-footed player playing on the left wing and a left-footed player playing on the right wing, but we are 
pretty evenly matched when it comes to left-footers and right-footers in the team. Like, we had five left-footed outfield players in the last game against Wolves. Five right-footed players. There's usually not quite that many in teams. I don't know if that's a deliberate thing or this is just Arteta finding a way to balance the players that he has in those in those key positions. You know, whether it's Saka and Pepe on the right-hand side, Martinelli and Smith-Rowe uh, on the left-hand side. The ability to go two ways, I think, is more prevalent with, with Saka and Smith-Rowe, for example. But, you know, the the... Um, these players are sort of not exactly where you would always expect players who use that particular foot to be. And they're brilliant one-on-one as well. And I think that's so important. Saka, I thought in the first few months of the season, Saka, we relied on him a bit. We, like, yeah. There was quite a few opportunities or opportunities, games, moments in games where you think if he was just given a little bit more help, then he could be so much more dangerous. The ball would go out to the right wing and Odegaard developed, I wouldn't call it like a nasty habit, but he did have this habit of actually not helping Saka very much on the right, where he'd sort of, Saka would have the ball and Odegaard would just stand right inside him and want the ball Mm. to feet and ask for it to feet. And I think these last few games, you've seen Odegaard making runs that take players away from Saka. So it's not so easy to have Saka out there on the right, isolated against two or three defenders. Now, obviously, Cedric's played in these last few games at right back. He He's making runs on the outside that Tomiyasu doesn't usually make. Or Odegaard's making a run around Saka. He's making like an extra effort not just to stand 10 yards inside and sort of point to his feet, Mm. but he's making a real effort to get around Saka. And he knows that that opens a space up. You know, if if Odegaard's leaving the middle of the pitch, there's probably going to be a defender coming with him. And that probably means there's going to be a gap in the middle of the pitch for Saka to go into. And I think Saka can play and, and take two or three men on at once. I think some of his best performances this season, he was left quite isolated like that. You saw against, I think, against Norwich and against Mm. West Ham. A lot of our danger in the first half came from him beating one or two. But then a third man is too much, or or sometimes the second man is too much. When he only has one man to beat, and you saw it with the goal against Norwich, Odegaard was there and then went outside him and just took a defender away, and it just opened a yard of space for Saka to come inside on that left foot. And and Smith-Rowe's the same, you know, is... He's brilliant at beating a man, and one on one, I'd back both of them pretty much every time. But as soon as you put a second or a third defender near them, and that's where the movement from everybody else is so important to make sure those players are one on one and not one on three when we get them in dangerous positions. What about Xhaka's role, just coming back to that, and him being higher up the pitch, and we're asking him to do certain things, as you say, that 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 um, rotation of position. In that left-hand side, you know, getting forward, getting towards the edge of the box, he can go forward while Tierney sits. Uh, He'll sit if Tierney goes forward, that kind of thing. But what about the idea that Granit Xhaka, who isn't chasing back towards his own goal, Granit Xhaka, who isn't asked to make a split-second decision Mm -hmm. on the turn, is uh, a lower-risk Granit Xhaka, if that's the right way to put it. A, a, lower, a better protected Granit Xhaka? Yeah, maybe I think, so, yeah. I, I think he's been important in us controlling these games. And when I talk about being aggressive, I think Gabriel is like a really obvious one because when the ball goes long, you can see him dominating strikers. But I think Granit Xhaka's the same. Like the ball drops on the edge of the box and he's there and he's there with a sort of 
I don't know. Uh, like he, he doesn't have to look behind him and wonder, can I go for this? I think Xhaka is is probably our most, in a good way, our most aggressive player, and probably the player that if the ball's dropping on the edge of the box and it's a 50-50 out of all of our midfielders he's probably the one you mm. want going into it if if he's got to sort of like throw his body in and and physically beat the the opponent I think Thomas Partey's obviously really great defensively but not in the same kind of way he'll kind of nick the ball away from you Xhaka's the one that you want to the, the ball comes out in those sort of positions and you want him right up against the, the opposition player you know winning the ball or forcing them into to playing it long or kicking it out for a throw or whatever mm. or playing it backwards even in you know into their own box or into their, towards their own corner flag I think he's better protected definitely there was that great clip which I'm sure most people saw of Ben White playing a really horrible <laughs> pass against Wolves and then just kicking Raul Jimenez yeah, as, yeah, he, yeah. as he tried to break away from him and if that was Granit Xhaka <laughs> well, yeah, very, very much so. Um, but I think, but Shackle was ahead of the ball in uh, as it broke. And uh, watching it again, I thought, obviously you watch Ben White the first time and it's hilarious. But watching it a, a couple more times and watching the game again, it's Shaka ahead of the ball. And sort of if you think of that old, old way of playing, I mean, it's still how we mm. play, but... If you think of that thing where Tierney goes out on the left, Tierney's playing as your left winger. And when the ball breaks around the halfway line and Wolves go to attack in that position, then you've got Kieran Tierney, who who has great recovery speed, yeah. great nose for making a challenge, and definitely definitely a better nose for that than Granite Jacket has. You've got him sort of 20 yards away from the play. If you If you swap them and if you have... Xhaka further forward, not not swap them directly because yeah, 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 obviously know playing inside. But if you have Tierney as that last defender, that one playing on the left of Gabriel when we're in that position, then you've got your probably your best sweeping, covering type defender is is there in that position to do that. So I think it, you know, it, that, that's a role or a position that could leave Xhaka exposed in a way that it doesn't leave Tierney exposed. And it helps us defensively. Obviously, it's it's stuff we're doing on the ball and people see it as stuff that you're doing in possession. But it's stuff that we're doing that has you know, a defensive purpose as well, I think. And yeah. having Tierney in that position closer to our goal, if you like, instead of out on the touchline on the flank, 20 yards, 30 yards from, from the striker or the winger when we lose possession is obviously going to make us more solid as a team. And when Xhaka's inside and it means Smith Rowe or Martinelli go outside, then it means like Saka on the right, when you're getting those one-on-one positions and those positions where the the game isn't so crowded, then you've got your players that you back to win the one-on-one more often than not up against the fullback one-on-one instead yeah. of having, with no disrespect, but instead of having Kieran Tierney there, who I think is, is pretty good in those situations as well, but is also a little bit predictable. And even when he beats his man, you'd much rather have Smithrow or Martinelli de- uh, delivering that final ball than having Tierney on it. It's it's interesting to place in the context of some comments that Mikel Arteta made in December 2020 when he talked about his desire um, to play a particular formation. He said, we want to move to a 4-3-3, but for that you need a lot of specificity in every position. But now in five or six positions, we don't have it. Maybe it's something you can move towards where even if you don't have it in those five or six positions, you feel like you've got it in three or four. 
and you can start that evolution. So do you think this is kind of where we're going with this? This is the this is the evolution of what Arteta wants from his team. Um, you know, Granit Xhaka's obviously got a, a very significant role to play between now and the end of this season. But maybe when we're looking forward and seeing how this becomes even more honed or whatever else, you're looking at maybe uh, a different kind of player, a different profile of player in that midfield. Yeah, I think I think the the sort of the signings that we've made are quite instructive, and Tommy Asu is the one that sticks out. It's really obvious that Arsenal and Mikel Arteta in particular had a had a really clear idea of what they wanted in a right back, and it wasn't a a, a get up and down sort of yeah. right back. It was a right back who could tuck in, who could be maybe an extra centre back, maybe tuck in and and be calm enough on the ball to play in midfield under pressure as well. But also, I think more than we've seen so far. Also a right back that will get outside Bakayo Saka and and help at that end of the pitch. I'd like to I'd probably call it like a like a pendulum the back four. I I don't think Mikel Arteta wants Kieran Tierney to bomb up and down the left and Tomiyasu to play as that sort of third center back all the time. Mm. I think it depends on where the ball is, where the opposition are, where their teammates are. I think he wants that to look like a pendulum and Tierney goes and Tomiyasu stays or Tomiyasu goes and Tierney stays and the the central midfielders or the wingers on that on those sides sort of act accordingly and it all just sort of fits in sync. So I think we're getting closer to it. I think Thomas Partey probably last season wasn't ready to anchor the midfield alone like he is doing at the moment. I think the players generally didn't... I think they knew what Mikel Arteta wanted from them, but I think it was all very specific. Mm. And now maybe those shackles are being loosened a bit. So they know what he wants from them, but they can interpret it a little bit more themselves on the pitch. And to be honest, I think the crowd being back has, has maybe forced his hand in a way that it's obvious he wants to be in control of everything all the time. Um, but you could hear him constantly last season and in, in a way that he just will not be able to coach the team through games anymore. So it does feel like those shackles have been loosened. The players are being trusted to, will it, like, with, through Mikel Arteta having a choice or not, he's now in a position where those players have to be trusted and are being trusted more to figure out the situations themselves, when mm. to go, when to stay. And it looks like they are starting to figure it out. I mean, I think the the, the sign of Martin Odegaard in particular just... The thing that we'd lacked for so long in that position for me was just security. Somebody who didn't waste the ball yeah. and somebody who kept the ball. I, mean, I know he divided opinion, but I thought that was what was so valuable about Alex Awobi uh, in the sort of the last season of Arsene Wenger and maybe Unai Emery's season as well, uh, full season in charge as well, is he was the only player we had in that front three or four that you thought would like hold the ball and not try and beat a man every time he got it. And if you think back to those Arsene Wenger teams, it, so often we talked about these players that could play in central midfield, mm. but they played on the wing. And you think of like Nasri as, as probably one of the examples that really sticks out, Alex Sleb. And they were midfielders. They were guys that wanted the ball all the time, but they played in a position where you didn't have the ball all the time. But then when they got it, they still protected it. They still cared about us not losing possession and gave us the opportunity to keep probing with attacks 
and instead of you know I think a team of three Alexis Sanchez's and a Theo Walcott would be a disaster you just <laughs> give the ball away constantly yeah. you, you know you need it's kind of what Arteta said himself about um, about was it Martinelli having gears yes I think that's right yeah the whole team has had to learn how to have gears and Martin Odegaard is the, the guy who can go through the gears like nobody else and go and go back down the gears like nobody else I think in, that we have anyway so the players I think are being trusted now and that specificity of, of players in different positions I think more than anything at left back and right back especially it means being able to do three or four different things and not being able to do one specific thing and we're finally starting to see it alright well look long may continue and hopefully we'll get to see it uh, this weekend when we face Watford we of course will preview that game for our Patreon members on Patreon tomorrow uh, for now though Lewis thank you very much thank you Andrew you can find Lewis on Twitter he is at LG Ambrose at LG Ambrose and you will find him every week previewing the Premier League games with me over on Patreon patreon.com forward slash arseblog we do a preview podcast for every Premier League game and the Big Cup games hopefully next season we'll be doing preview podcasts for Champions League games wouldn't that be nice keep fingers crossed for that patreon.com forward slash arseblog right I'm going to leave it there for this particular episode as always thank you so much for being here thank you for listening stay safe stay well stay healthy look after each other and you can join james and i on monday with an arsecast extra we'll be looking back on whatever happens against watford so until then take it easy folks cheers bye-bye That was episode 666. And, uh, you know, I knew it was coming for a couple of weeks. And I was thinking, what would I do for an end bit on episode 666? And I was thinking of something with the theme music from The Omen. But, uh, you know, listening back to it now, and in the context of everything else that's going on, I don't think anyone needs that. Nobody needs that for this particular episode. So hopefully normal service when it comes to end bits will resume on next week's show, episode 667. This monkey's gone to heaven. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 